Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined this week again just by Rusana Novikova. As you know, the SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who generously give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, and I hope you do, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and become a member of the Table of Ranks. So, Rusana, this week we have a really in- interesting interview about a very interesting and somewhat esoteric topic, the National Bolshevik Party and Edward Limonov. Um, why don't we just jump right into things because it is a bit of a long interview and go ahead and introduce our guest. Fabrizio Fengi is an assistant professor of Slavic studies at Brown University, specializing in contemporary Russian culture and politics with a specific focus on the relationship between art and literature and the shaping of post-Soviet public culture. His first book is It Will Be Fun and Terrifying, Nationalism and Protest in Post-Soviet Russia, published by University of Wisconsin Press. Here's Fabrizio Fengi. So you have this new book, and you know I'm I'm glad that you wrote about the National Bolshevik Party. I um, when I first started to like blog about Russia, I was incredibly fascinated with with their activities. Um, and you have this book; it will be fun and terrifying: nationalism and protest in post-Soviet Russia. You know, we always start our interviews like this. What was your intellectual and even personal journey that led you to research Limonov and the National Bolshevik Party? In terms of personal biography and uh, kind of intellectual trajectory of the book, it all started uh, in grad school. I was in Moscow at the time. It was the year 2011-12. I was there first for a period of study, later just working. And uh, I kind of found myself uh, in the midst of this kind of vibrant moment moment of this famous wave of protest for fair elections. And I started, and this was kind of a, a little bit of a, a, an epiphanic moment for everyone, I guess, in Russia or connected with Russia in the sense that up until then, my experience with Russia was that generally there were strong hesitations to talk about politics. When you would ask people about politics, they would be fairly hesitant to talk about it. And all of a sudden, at least in Moscow, everyone seemed that the only thing that they wanted to talk about was politics and protests and be politically active and be in the street. Of course, it was this huge thing of 100,000 people at the time, several times marching in the street. I was getting a PhD in Russian literature. I got more and more interested in the political side of things or where this kind of political life or political culture was coming from and decided to try to devote myself more actively to uh, kind of the intersection between art, literature, and politics. I was already interested in the contemporary world or contemporary culture in terms of research direction. 
And uh, so that started as a little bit as uh, a general interest in the post-Soviet political culture. And at the time, Limonov was a very vocal voice against the protests. Everyone was talking about him, but he was kind of having this role of somebody saying, this, this is kind of too uh, bourgeois for me. I am, uh, we, the National Bolsheviks, we were pioneer of protests here. And I knew of the National Bolsheviks, but I saw them as this kind of weird, quirky beast in the political and media spectrum. I had read some of Limonov's novel, novels, so I got more and more curious. And then as I started working more seriously on my dissertation, the kind of National Bolshevik and Limonov and then Dugin, part of the project kind of exploded in the sense of uh, becoming that main focus itself. And then I came back in 14, 15. At, the, at that point, I got a fellowship. So I got the opportunity to start conducting a more kind of true, serious ethnography in the sense of conducting interviews, doing the so-called participant observation. I asked some colleagues, professors in the anthropology department, how to do that. And so that's how the project started. At that point, there was that sort of revelatory moment of the ethnographic research in the sense that I got to know all of this network and it was a little bit in the process, a little bit of a discovery of the culture of the group more generally. You know, let me ask you something, because always people who, who study and, you know, become in contact with groups that are on the radical end, whether it's the right or the left, I always wonder about, you know, you're, you're going into an atmosphere of, in a lot of cases, some pretty strange and in some cases quite dangerous people. Um, did you have any, like, did you worry about or be concerned or how did you deal with the fact that you're going into this kind of strange space and having to, you know, be in contact with people who, you know, have some pretty um, <laughs> uh, distasteful views at some, you know, in some cases. It's at the very, very beginning when I got my first interviews, uh, it was fairly not that because I interviewed Limonov, I interviewed Prigepin, who at the time was a little bit of a different guy because he was director of Novaya Gazeta, as, as strange as in Nizhny Novgorod, as strange as it might seem today, right? So it was all fairly civilized. And when I started my research in Moscow in 1415, the more sort of actively involved from a social standpoint. So at the very beginning, it was not that uh, hard in the sense that it, there was a generational difference. There were sort of older Natsboli who were from uh, the 1990s. They, those were people who were at the time, meaning in the 90s, disenfranchised intellectuals, university students who would use these scary symbols, meaning fascist, communist, totalitarian, Stalinist, in a provocative manner, but they wouldn't be actually actively engaging with violence. They would, they would be fascinated by it, but from a, more from an intellectual standpoint. And then at this point, they were older, so they were I guess, closer with me or older in age. And so they're and they had, were all in sort of more middle-class urban professions, so the interactions would be much more bourgeois, so to speak. So there would be sort of encounters in cafes with uh, sort of pleasant conversations and memories of crazier times. And then there was the moment, I guess, where I got a little bit scared 
when uh, I started going to these um, to these in meetings that they had, it was a tradition of the NBT. They had these meetings on Mondays at the bunker, which was called the bunker, their headquarters in Moscow. This was at that point. I, I just called, you know, the number found on the on the website. Went there, and you know, these meetings were the so-called foot soldiers, the real activists who would be there at the meeting. Some of them would be living in this bunker, which was a kind of a, a hidden basement with cats roaming around half legally. And, uh, and then the, the best part in terms of socializing and getting them to talk to you was to hang out in the backyard, quite cold during the winter, sharing vodka, also not very legal in the sense that sometimes the police would show up and <laughs> kick them out. And so that, so to make a long story short, there were some interactions that felt like could be a little edgy in the sense that, well, this was 1415 for one thing. So I found myself in the situation of the war in Ukraine. The NBP at that point had become supportive of the war and they were sending activists. So some of my informants, they were people who had just fought in the war. They came back, they had all sorts of the military uniform and uh, they had just experienced violence again. That was a situation where one couldn't, I couldn't say immediately, I'm a graduate student from Yale, I'm Italian, I'm American. <laughs> you had to kind of start like ease into it. And then third moment in the conversation, where, where, where are you? Where, where are you? What, what are you doing here? Why do you have an accent? And some of the foot soldiers could be soccer hooligans in terms of background or people from truly sort of ultra-nationalist movements that at times could get on the aggressive side. So that was sort of scary. The, for perhaps the scariest moment that that I really kind of experienced, and that, that I just kind of had the classic sort of quiet running away, was when I was trying at that point to get in touch with uh, members or leaders of the Eurasia movement, that is Dugin's Eurasia movement, who are much more closed and secretive. And so I found also this number. I went to this place, which was supposed to be a bookstore. It was a bookstore, kind of. It was a room in a sort of corporate thing. And I went there, I was just go going through Dugin's books and there was some, some employee there who obviously didn't know anything about the group. And these two guys came in and these guys had, if one had any sort of exposure to any kind of street culture in Europe in terms of soccer hooligans, they had the full Lonsdale uniform with these popping muscles underneath them. They looked quite threatening. And, you know, they started immediately chatting with me and looked a little bit like they were trying to test me. And their way of testing me was to ask, uh, well, questions like, uh, do you know that in Norway they just legalized pedophilia? What do you think about it? And I was, uh, I, I, my reaction was immediately not, not, uh, that that was not going to be a productive conversation. So I that, said, yeah, no, that's great. It was great meeting you out. And I think that in the provinces, they get much rougher, so to speak. But in terms of the radical right <clears throat> groups that one could study or have direct uh, exposure to, they're not necessarily the most immediately dangerous. Thanks, Sean, for asking this question. <laughs> I've been meaning to ask something similar because I'm in the field right now and I work with 
conservative groups myself and being an American citizen in Russia at this point in, in time, I had a couple of moments where I freaked out as well. But nothing as crazy as men in military uniforms, obviously. I wanted to go back to Eduard Limonov. I was wondering if you could introduce him to our audience who uh, may not be familiar with him and tell a few words about his um, trajectory as a political figure and a writer. Limonov has a very long and diverse trajectory, both politically, intellectually, and as a writer. And at various points of his career and his trajectory, he wore at the time uh, very many different masks. And in part, this is because kind of his own life and work as a writer was very much based on this performing very different characters and very different personas. So he was initially the part of the Soviet underground in the 1970s. He was from Kharkov or Kharkiv in today's Ukraine. And he moved then to New York. He was forced to emigrating quite sort of mysterious circumstances, but that's, he started as a poet, and then in New York he found himself as a sort of dissident among dissidents, one might say, in the sense that he got to New York, but he was very marginalized as an intellectual and as an immigrant. He had resentment against Solzhenitsyn and Sakharov, and because they had such sort of uh, strongly pro-Western views, and he criticized them for not showing the reality of uh, thousands of Russians immigrants who had not the most uh, sort of pleasant (laughs) journey into uh, capitalist New York. And he became famous, of course, for this Etaya Edichka, It's Me Edi, which is a very raw, almost to the point of making one cringe uh, self-confession and self-performance and sort of... uh, Voyage au bout de la nuit of he as a character himself in New York. And that is very much about sort of his transgression, his exposure to punk culture and uh, counterculture in New York, his sexual experiences, bisexual experiences, and his fascination with, at this point, the radical left. So he was a leftist writer, author, and this was very kind of scandalous and outrageous, especially in the Russian immigrant community, because the two things seen as most scandalous and unacceptable were to talk about one's homosexual desire, in this case, and to declare oneself leftist. (laughs) Those were the two most horrible things that one could do in in that milieu. He was initially kind of refused by several publishers, then he moved to France, And at that point, sort of in the 1990s, he had a little bit of a sort of complete shift, radical shift from sort of a more delicate uh, hippie left, left, well, not hippie, more kind of punk leftist image that he had maintained, especially with with Etaya Edichka, with It's Me Adi. And he had sort of this transformation toward a more macho, warlike self-presentation. Did something trigger that? Was there a something in his life or an event that triggered his this move? Well, yes, there were, there were two things, I guess. One was in Paris. There was this group of intellectual, intellectuals in Paris surrounding Lidio International. And these intellectuals, they thought that the left at that point in, in France had become completely 
institutional, institutionalized and normalized and so that it, they, it needed to be injected with a sort of new life in the sense of revolutionary or emancipatory potential by combining with the, by combining it with the far right. So there was that, number one, and number two, Perestroika, which, which Limonov kind of saw with a lot of concern from the very beginning. So he was kind of against a full, well, even before sort of the end of the Soviet Union came, I guess, in a way he saw it coming and he was definitely against this, well, what he saw, I think, as a westernization uh, or, or sort of transformation uh, of Russia into neoliberalism. And then there was this, this kind of almost sexual, physical fascination with war, when in the early 90s, he had this moment where he, he actually writes that explicitly, he said, I was, I was in love with war and with war people. He went, and then there's this moment where he travels to former Yugoslavia, he hangs out with war criminals, Karadzic, Arkan, what makes him a, a, at some point a pariah in the international intellectual community. And he's truly fascinated by these people. And in a way, the MPFA comes out of this as well, in the sense that it is this sort of bohemian paramilitary, hyper-militarized organizations. You know, one of the things that kind of strikes me, and, and I, I thought of this when I was reading the first chapters of the book, where you're talking about his early writings, is he he sees revolutionary power in basically the lumpen proletariat, right? You know, there's this one moment where you talk about how one of the things that fascinated him about the 19th revolution of 1917, it was, it was the lowest people, the dregs of society, the, you know, and, and his, his writings about New York is his gravitates to, um, racial minorities, he gravitates towards prostitutes, punk, all these marginal communities. Can you talk about this through line that seems to be part of also the National Bolshevik Party of who it kind of attracts as members, this kind of lumpen element? Yes, definitely. That's definitely a crucial aspect of the movement and of uh, kind of Limonov's aesthetics and sensibility. It is certainly very important. But the question, so to starting in New York, and this is something that one that, 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 that is there in uh, It's Me, Eddie, as well. He, you know, he tells the story. He says, I went to these meetings of communists or, or Trotsky, and he says, but they're all kind of petty bourgeois. They don't care. I would like to have a machine gun and do a real revolution. And they, they, and all of these people, at some point, we were in some sketchy neighborhood in New York, and this girlfriend I was going, uh, who was accompanying me to one of these meetings, she was, I'm scared. And he said, why would you be scared? I, that's the people, that these are my people. These are the people who actually need to be uh, leading. So there's that fascination for the, again, as you said, the drags of societies, actually, I think that the, the, the term that he uses. And then, well, later, when, when he's, and this is when he talks about the 1917, and that's where there is this, also this kind of fascist fascination or kind of Nazi fascination with it, which is also with the sort of uh, Hitlerites in the sort of uh, beer hall putsch or that kind of stuff. So his idea is that, so it's, it's, it is uh, to an extent, it, it is lumpen proletariat. His kind of vision is of marginals. So that's, there's an element that is gendered, that marginals are often men or young men who felt, feel isolated and 
and they have this kind of violent impulses. So one classic mother, sometimes when they asked him what, uh, how, what, how was your life in New York at the time, he always, I think a couple of times in some of these interviews, he answered, the closest I was is that the protagonist of Taxi Driver, or more recently he was saying the Joker looked, I went to the movie theater, I watched the Joker, it was a little, he was a little bit like me, like this loser getting angry. And so for the 1917, it's interesting, he has that famous passage or quite interesting passage in Padrostok Savienko, which is translated as memoir of a Russian punk, where he said, uh, I would like to make a revolution. And at that point, he, that's, there's, there's a kind of a blatnoy, uh, blatnoy elements in the sense of the uh, prison camp culture. So uh, he says, I, don't, I, I would like to make a revolution and I would like to take as my group criminals because criminals are the... At that point, so at that point it's, it's less punk and more true criminals with switchblades and so the, with that violent potential. And, and he sees the 1917 people a little bit like criminals. And I guess, I mean, he has a point with the Stalin's background. So he has this idea, uh, historical, historically, in a sense, there is some uh, truth to that in the sense that, you know, that obviously the Bolsheviks were kind of a minority. He describes this, he says, it's not a majority of people. It's a small group of very organized, very structured, almost fanatic groups. The working class and workers had become completely absorbed and into sort of mass consumerism and a sort of capitalist culture. So they they all had quite petty interests and they had lost their revolutionary potential in that sense. And then in that case, only the marginals in the sense of these young, disenfranchised, depressed people and, and on the model of, say, taxi driver would, would be. <laughs> right, right. Now... Now, you know, this this brings up, of course, another question, and, and I would imagine a lot of listeners would start wondering about this. You know, the National Bolshevik Party and also especially the Eurasianists, the Eurasian movement, you know, they're often labeled as fascist. They play with fascist symbols. Even in your description right now, you referenced many different kind of fascist um, history and individuals and aesthetics. Uh, but you, in your work, uh, you shy away from labeling them as fascist. Why, why is that? Yes. So, well, so my first point and decision in that sense was that most of the scholars in political science who had um, written about the NBP and Dugin and the Eurasia movement before me, they were mostly basing their statements on this definition of a sort of common denominator of a sort of a general definition of fascism by Roger Griffith, British political scientist, and which was based on a sort of basic ideological statements or elements that could be summarized with the, the idea of a sort of patriotic view that includes or, in, or involves a palingenetic, a view of a sort of palingenetic revolutionary a regeneration or transformation of society. That's, I'm not, I'm not quoting literally. But so the idea, my problem with that view in terms of, uh, of applying it to fairly different groups was that it kind of reduced the discussion of any sort of patriotic or conservative or uh, anti-egalitarian group as uh, 
fascist as a binary. So what you Chuck would call the a binary so binary socialism in the sense of dissidents versus the dissidents versus the Soviet pro propaganda, and that kind of uh, made then it's a sort of uh, it was necessarily creating a sort of uh, potential oversimplification. So my main point there was to say even if people say declared themselves to be fascist, as at various points Limonov and Dugin did, you know that. Uh, Dugin said that we, we need a, a fascist red and boundless fascism for Russia in the 1990s when they were most radical. So even when they had these fascinations and they used this even sort of half provocative or Stiob-like uh, appropriation of Nazi symbols in a way that was very sort of punk-like, or even when they embraced ideologies or ideas that can be recognized as fascist, I think that it's important to consider what these ideologies and claims mean and in a certain, in a way, sort of the social life of these ideas. So what they mean in a specific cultural and linguistic context and, uh, and what are that, what they imply in terms of the culture, history, aesthetics and thinking of a community or an individual, a leader, and so on and so forth. So that was my main reason for shying away from such sort of generic definition. Well, it sounds like it just take it takes more away than it gives, right? It doesn't really give anything in terms of, say, a specificity about, I don't know, the National Bolshevik Party, which has a lot of performative and a lot of play and a lot of, um, you know, kitschiness with their use of fascist symbol symbols, so... listeners, do you like Russian and Soviet cinema? If so, I have the podcast for you. Russophiles Unite, a Russian and Soviet movie podcast. It's hosted by Ali Pitts, who worked and studied in Moscow between 2009 to 2014. And in each episode, Ali interviews a guest and then discusses a film with them. The show features films by the big names of Russian and Soviet cinema, such as Andrew Tarkovsky and Sergei Eisenstein. But it also includes discussions of less known films, such as Maria Sakyan's masterful semi-autobiographical war drama, The Lighthouse, and Elam Klimov's sorely underappreciated satire, Welcome or No Trespassing. So if you like Russian and Soviet film, check out Russophiles Unite, a Russian and Soviet movie podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. I wanted to go back to something you briefly mentioned just a few moments ago. You talked about the social life of NBP's ideas. And also in the book, you write that uh, the National Bolshevik Party profoundly influenced Russian mass culture. And I was wondering if you could give us just a couple examples that you've seen in Russia of these ideas being disseminated and appropriated by people, by, by common people who are not necessarily affiliated with the party or its ideology? Well, the main sort of way in which the NDP actions and ideas and aesthetics kind of became part of Russian society is, of course, through the sort of exposure to mass media of their big sort of direct action, the so-called and in part with the sort of presence of Limonov and then in a different way of Dugin in Russian mass media, in that sort of, in terms of the mass circulation of ideas, I think that there's a little bit of a paradoxical moment 
in the sense that Dugin and the Eurasia movement, even more so than the MDP, and they came about in the 2000s and they were sort of staunchly imperialist and pro-Putin, they are even more so a minoritarian group that in the sense that Dugin tried at various points to co-opt very sort of mass nationalist movements with the Russian march and the uh, DPNE, the, the movement against uh, illegal immigration, which is a very big sort of uh, nationalist movement in Russia. But it was not, it, he was never successful in doing that because he was too convoluted and kind of <laughs> nerdy and complicated in his formulation. So these nationalists, they, they wouldn't understand what he was talking about. And so paradoxically, so the Eurasia movement, the, the NPP was minoritarian, but had a grassroots component in terms of activists and sort of the so-called foot soldiers or the other activists, whereas the Eurasia movement remained really purely kind of a small circle of conservative intellectuals, as, the, as Dugin would say, who would work not to achieve power, but to achieve or accomplish influence over power. And, but the, the, the paradoxical moment there is that I think that Dugin and the Eurasia movement did have a more kind of a stronger influence in terms of ideas and on mass culture, even having a much sort of smaller group in terms of grassroots politics in the sense that they, from very early on, they had an ability to a little bit kind of conquer the, it, that's how they would put it, the sort of the Russian blogosphere. So they, they were in that sort of very progressive and pioneering in the sense that they started working with the internet very, very strongly from very early on. This right hand of Dugin was telling me what we did is, uh, what we did is we took and started hundreds of websites where we published all of our stuff and filled all the blogosphere with all of these written words, so to speak. And what would happen is that some minister who said wanted to write something or uh, say something in a speech about Eurasia would tell his assistant, please go get me a definition of Eurasia. And his assistant would go to interns, well, yeah, horribly exploited, bored, would go to the Yandex and the Eurasia. And he said, well, Eurasia, if you do Eurasia on Yandex, Evrasia in Russia, the first hundred results are our stuff because we put it we were very and so they they steal it from us they put it in their speeches and that's how we influence power that's as if one should be careful in the sense that in such sort of radical right right wing groups there is a tendency to overstate one in one's influence over power or actually but but I think there is some truth in the sense that, you know, Dugin then had these all sort of all these moments with these connections with the military, the Ministry of Defense, sort of over uh, generals, and then his, you know, uh, role to, as advisor of the speaker of the Duma and then at Moscow State University. So he had all these kind of institutional recognition, or when, you know, when finally in the 2010s he would be interviewed by Posner or mainstream. Right? So he had these moments of going into the mainstream, but more than that, and this really affects both the influence in Russia and any kind of sort of mass culture and his international influence or the Eurasia movement, the, the influence that they had is in terms of this sort of kind of capillary, more alternative media type.
I wanted to go back to the figure of Limonov uh, that you identify as a new type of public intellectual, or we might even say a counter-intellectual. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the difference between Limonov's involvement in Russian public life and the so-called traditional Russian intelligentsia and where the points of tension are between them. The main feature or that kind of defines this counterintelligence in the sense of these circles surrounding the NDP in the 90s is based on their political commitment. The 90s was a moment in which being politically committed was almost not coming for for intellectuals in Russia, maybe much even more than, uh, or definitely even more than elsewhere. So, so I think that Limonov, in that sense, embodied a different type of intellectuals who quite consciously wanted to to embody or sort of represent a different kind of intellectuals in, in the sense of his political commitment, at times radical, at times uh, controversial, but something that kind of made him stand out from, and, and, this, and especially in this sort of commitment to revolutionary or... or uh, revolutionary ideas, again, with different nuances. And so that starts with, again, this moment that he had during his immigrant time in the sense of being a dissident against dissidents and continued in the 1990s. And again, Limonov had this very sort of visceral way of expressing these ideas. It was often biographical. It was always saying, I choose my commitments not based on sort of great ideas, but on my own experience, the fact that I was abandoned and mistreated by the Soviet Union and by the West. So that's what established my my convictions. So, and he had very, he had at times, I have to say also very funny in his essays, kind of representation uh, or parodies of Russian intellectuals. So famously, he's, uh, in addition to Solzhenitsyn, his main nemesis during his emigre period was Yosef Brodsky. In a way, undeserved, because I think that Brodsky at the beginning actually supported Limonov. He wrote an introduction, it was actually very nice, but Limonov hated him, he was a little envious. He had this, those moments in that sense of person. And with Brodsky, uh, so that, that was one. And then the other image, that, that's the image that he used uh, uh, in the 1990s when he was saying things against Russian intellectuals, sort of having this like harsh, they were called Limonki. He was Limonov, his pseudonym, in the sense of harsh and sour like a lemon. And Limonki were these grenades with these articles that he wrote. And his main parody of Russian intellectuals was that they would have always unmistakably a portrait of Pasternak behind them. <laughs> and he had this very vivid image. And he actually says that. He says, I don't have anything in particular against Pasternak himself. But this, you know, dusty, very literally, very bookish. So in that sense, it's interesting because Limonov always, you know, he was a graphomaniac, like Dugin in a different way. He wrote 55 books. He always, at the end, he always wanted to be, I'm an established Russian writer. So he had both this wanting to be recognized as a sort of modern Dostoevsky, but also saying, I don't give a damn about literature. I'm a politics, even when I interviewed, it was like, I don't want to talk about all of this stuff, literature, whatever, I was doing it in the past. Politics is my own thing. So it was very anti-logocentric. But in his parody of the Russian intellectual, he was very sort of 
non-logocentric in the sense that she had this sort of this sort of almost this this very sort of funny kind of uh, contempt of this almost religious worship of literary figures like Pasternak or Dostoevsky. So that was one. And in terms of the lack of engagement and this mythology that I guess was part of it, I guess it was definitely part of the Soviet underground and in part of the community in connection with Brodsky, say, he's, so there was this idea, you know, that say, again, your Chuck has that of living beyond, right, of in the sense of refusing any type of engagement with society, so social conflicts or reality in the sense of its dirtiest aspects. So when Brodsky died, everyone was writing very celebratory obituaries of him, and Limonov wrote one of his obituaries that was not very celebratory at all, and he was saying, well, Brodsky found him terribly boring. Of course, all the academics and intellectuals love him because he's boring and he had... You know, I had this vision of the world culture and neoclassicism. And his main uh, image, vivid, it was quite funny, I have to say, no matter what you think, was that that uh, he was saying, well, yeah, and Brodsky was so boring. And now he lies in, in a cemetery in Venice, Venice that is a very, which is a dead city. So he's lying in a cemetery within a cemetery. I don't care about this part. I want to do some poetry that is in the streets for, you know, violent, rough kids when things are happening and not being Venice that kind of died in the 16th century. So in that sense, that was a very politically committed, again, for better or worse, intellectual, that was the kind of counterintelligent that you kind of thought about. This goes to a question I have. You know, he kind of presents himself as a, as a today's Mayakovsky, right? He he plays on this like this border between hooliganism and, and provocation, um, and and he he is a, a kind of aesthetically larger than life figure. There's a certain cult of personality around him. So and and this makes me wonder who who joins the National Bolshevik Party? Do they join because of Limonov, right? Or do they join? Is it a really personalized thing around Limonov, or is it something about the ideology, or or what is it that in these people that you talk to who are were just rank and file members, what attracted them to this group? With Mayakovsky, if there were comparisons, I don't think that he took them well, which would have been such a sort of revolutionary classic. That's the, he would always have a reaction that was like, oh, I have nothing to do. I'm actually better than Mayakovsky. <laughs> sort of, he wouldn't appreciate the past, which is kind of a funny side note. In terms of the, the people, um, well, the people, again, the, there's a the people joining the NBP, I think that there is a difference in terms of different decades and generation. Back in the day, in the 1990s, it was uh, ga- gangsters or gopniki who wanted to be poets and poets who wanted to be gopniki or gangsters or kind of Chechen veterans. And so at the very beginning, it was a lot of, again, disenfranchised students, mostly from uh, quite prestigious universities in Moscow who wanted to act rough, but they were actually very bookish. Actually, Dugin had a very sort of strong role at that point. So everyone says that, yes, Limonov was more... Because Limonov in the 90s was this kind of superstar, even more than now when he came back to Russia. He was very recognized in the street. He had this sort of image of a rock star that had been invented by this other fascinating, quite charismatic guy who now lives in New York, Yaroslav Magutin, who's now this kind of queer performer in New York. 
and was an early member of the NBP. So they said, so Limonov was very famous. Dugin, he looked much older, but he was actually much younger and definitely not famous. When then the young people arrived to the actual bunker, Dugin had this hypnotic thing. And Dugin would say, you know, everyone is promising you stuff, that you're going to become rich and have a career. And we're not going to promise you anything except the fact that you are going to die beautifully. So, and all these young, dark punk kids were all absolutely ecstatic by this sort of dark romantic idea. So that's some of the people. And uh, yes, later on, I think in the, and this is when, uh, when in the 2000s, when this became, when the NDP to the first decade of the 2000s became a little bit more of a, mass movement in the sense that they did collect their 50,000 signatures, but they had definitely a few thousand activists who were ready to, they were kind of that kind of type of organization, highly committed. So those were often, as they would say, Limonka played an important role. It was this uh, quite kind of uh, innovative, creative newspaper, party newspaper that was a mix of punk and Russian avant-garde and it was mostly sold in these alternative uh, record stores of heavy metal, punk. And so a lot of the more, the guys who came from the provinces and then became exactly food soldiers, uh, activists, that's like kind of uh, low-level ranking files, they were initially fascinated, went through this fascination with the counterculture and uh, rock music and alternative music. Then one of them, for instance, he would say, and then you became an activist, she would, would tell the story. And at that point, you know, the countercultural part went a little bit in the background. And the main thing was that you were part of this and the thing that was, had a much stronger identity. And he would say, and at the time you kind of, you know, internet uh, was not as developed. So you would, he said, you would find the address of the various NBP headquarters throughout Russia and you would kind of, hitchhike throughout Russia and you would always find activists who would kind of welcome you and you could, uh, you had this kind of network around it. So that, that's the general idea. And, and I have to say, and then, then, okay, so in terms of politics, in terms of the more unsavory aspect, some of the people who uh, joined, especially throughout the 2000s, were uh, a little bit kind of quote unquote, the drags of society, skinheads or sort of violent kids from peripheries. Some people would say that, of course, it wasn't great because these, these quite violent, potentially intolerant element would come and be part of the party or the organization. And there were elements of sexism, homophobia, anti-Semitism, racism, although not officially supported, they were there because it was a nationalist organization. So that's ultra-nationalist organization. So that's kind of the most unsavory part or the more unsavory part. Then the other view from some activists was that actually, so the movement in that sense was a positive thing because they took these people who otherwise would have gone and been part of violent groups who would say murder anti-fascists or immigrants. And they were part of an ideology that in a way was a little bit more constructive at least at that point in the 2010s, the NDP was a little bit more of a, a kind of avant-garde of the liberal opposition against Putin, paradoxically. 
and they were mostly sort of their agenda was mostly focusing on human rights, civil rights, uh, equality, uh, social equality, and so on and so forth. So that it's, uh, the, the idea would be that these skinheads or soccer hooligans would uh, use this energy, channel this energy through to, towards something more positive. You um, gestured towards links between the international alt-right movement and the National Bolshevik Party. I wonder if you could say a few more words about it and tell us where you see the parallels between those radical movements, conservative movements, and how how did NBP's ideas, Natsboli's ideas, uh, got exported to other countries such as you know Europe and the U.S. When I started my research, this red brown ideology was something that no one was no no one was really talking about. By 2012, 13 was not that that I would one would say sort of oh do you remember there was this strange moment in Paris where people with this ideal international it made big scandal. But this kind of joining of the left and the right was not very common, and then it became common in the really in the last. Five, well, more commonly discussed in the last five years or so, well, in America with Trump, in the United States with Trump's victory at the presidential election, in Europe, in various, well, I can think of Italy that has a quite strong uh, red-brown, uh, well, strong in terms of exposure. And then things changed very much, of course, with the war in Ukraine, where there is radical right-wing and radical left-wing, left-wing groups, at least in the 14-15, who were fighting as volunteers, kind of hot-headed guys on the Russian side and the Ukrainian side. So it's a very sort of complicated scenario that developed most recently. In terms of the, I would say, in terms of the international influence, again, Dugin is the most uh, crucial figure in this sense. Well, so, and I would say that the way I would conceptualize it is as a sort of a mutual influence or a sort of influence from the center in the sense of a Eurocentric vision of the world to the periphery in the sense of Russia and back. Dugin started, so he called himself Eurasianist a little bit later, but he started in circles close to the Mamlev circle in Soviet Russia. And his influence was initially sort of cultural and aesthetics, but of the European and Western new right. So his first sort of radical revolutionary ideas, they were coming. His source of inspiration was uh, Alain de Benoit, Stoikers, and other. So it was a weird thing because, of course, it was a Russian nationalism, all based on very imported and foreign ideas, so to speak. And so that was the center versus toward periphery direction. And then with his presence on the internet and online in Russia, and then he also had this very well-studied and retraced network, international networks that are mostly networks in the in the far right in Western Europe, South America to this day, and the United States. Dugin had this kind of uh, recirculation of these far right, new right ideas. And so if we move forward uh, 20, 30 years to the alt-right that was coming, becoming kind of popular or known in, in to, to, from, to, since to, from 2016 to now with, say, Steve Bannon or Richard Spencer or these kind of figures, there is a strange uh, situation because to a certain extent, a lot of these 
kind of alt-right online right-wing figures, populist figures. They have many of the same sort of ideological sources that Dugin had, that Dugin had, but at the same time, there's not necessarily an immediate sort of influence. They might just share the same sources. But to an extent, my sense and my theory and argument is that a lot of these uh, uh, alt-right or new right uh, European right sources are kind of reassimilated through the mediation of Dugin himself. So there's this much stronger anti-globalist or anti-Western element to it that has a little bit that has definitely passed through this neo-Eurasianist side. So that that's and and Dugin now is present in that is he has become quite opportunistic and toned down or simplified his ideas. He's very present in various sort of mass media throughout Europe in a way that is very well, sort of simplistic in the, in the sense of pure, straightforward support of Putin's policies, whichever they may be. But the more imperialist and the more reactionary, the better for him. Yeah. And, and finally, um, Edward Limonov died in March 2020, a, roughly a year before the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And, and given his past irredentism and nationalism, and of course, the support for the annexation of Crimea and the war in the Donbass. What do you think uh, Limonov would say today about the war in Ukraine? That is a, a difficult question to answer. I can say <clears throat> what he was saying in 2014 and 15. Of course, he himself grew up in, in Ukraine, uh, in Kharkov or Kharkiv, so he had quite strong feelings about the country. And of course, the NBP in that sort of quite consistently, even if the NBP kind of changed flags and and ideologies and convictions throughout its history, quite frequently, they were quite consistent in the idea of the sort of resurgence or, well, both the the idea of protecting and defending the rights of Russian in uh, former Soviet countries, and that's what the, the, the term that they would use, they remained very close even to also to Dugin's ideas. Back in 2014-15, I remember hearing him talk at various conferences and speeches that he gave. He had, again, his very vivid, personal, much less theoretical and much more biographical way of defining things that he would say he had, he, he did at the time support the separatist movement in Eastern Ukraine and even the he, he would have supported even stronger support from the Russian Federation to the separatists. And his way of putting it was that, again, very biographical, very vivid, possibly controversial, was that Ukraine was like an ex-wife who had gotten out of a divorce, getting too much out of it. So his point was, that's, that's too much, that the, the whole Eastern part is Russian, uh, uh, linguistically, culturally, so they can have their, I guess maybe the Dnieper River work was possibly or a little bit less their western part, but the eastern part is Russian, period. The Crimea, is not, there's not even, we shouldn't even talk about it, Sevastopol, it's far, but it's that. So that was his support. Now, today it's difficult to say because this last invasion, even if one had imperialist views or nationalist views, it is something that ideologically and for anyone who has any sort of, how would you say, integrity, it's so senseless and absurd that I'm not sure 
And and Limonov was somebody who was going counter against the current at various points of the majority. So I'm not sure this is pure speculation. But one person that I think kind of surprised me among the, in the Russian intelligentsia, among people who are more on the conservative side, was, uh, and in that sense, I think that there are analogies because he had some connections and similarities with Limonov is Nivzorov who was famously very irredentist and imperialist. He was this media personality journalist that became quite prominent in the, in the early 90s. He was pro-Putin for a long time, and now he, he ran away because he says very critical, very harsh things against Putin, and he immediately ran away. He's, he's in a position of privilege in the sense that he obviously had connections and financial support. But he's uh, extremely harsh in criticizing Putin and the war. He has this, he makes jokes about this fact, oh, this great leader, how many children does he want to kill so that he can prove his greatness? So he's very kind of satirical in a very hard way. So liking certain aspects of Limonov, especially as a writer, as a provocateur, and knowing that he was somebody who quite consistently went against the current, I would like to hope that maybe he would not support this. But I don't know. He had these moments where, you know, where he was supporting a sort of Serbian nationalism and, uh, and quite horrible things. So it could go, it could go either way. That was Fabrizio Fengi. Fabrizio Fengi is an assistant professor of Slavic studies at Brown University, specializing in contemporary Russian culture and politics, with a specific focus on the relationship between art and literature and the shaping of post-Soviet public culture. His first book is It Will Be Fun and Terrifying, Nationalism and Protest in Post-Soviet Russia, published by University of Wisconsin Press. So, Sean... um, what do you think of Limonov and what do you think he represents uh, on a Russian political stage? Well, I, I've been long fascinated by him. Um, I started, I was introduced to Limonov through The Exile, this newspaper by Mark Ames and um, my, uh, Matt Taibbi in the 1990s that was published out of Moscow. And they used to run uh, a column by Limonov um, and, and written in his broken English. Like they purposely didn't edit him. So it had this really interesting flavor. So that was the first time. And I and I was incredibly fascinated by him, um, mostly because I found his whole shtick interesting, the aesthetics of the national, first the national Bolshevik party, right? This wedding of nationalism and Bolshevism, the, 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 the NBP flag of the hammer and sickle on, a, on the background of a Nazi flag. Um, and I really think that it kind of the aesthetics and, and the politics of this party movement, whatever, I never saw it as or considered it in, that ideologically deep in the sense of I don't think the national Bolsheviks practiced or adhered to any kind of hard and fast doctrine of ideology. I, I kind of see it. I saw it as a postmodernist project in the sense that. And here, I think it really plugs into like the 1990s and the early 2000s in the sense that it's lots of play and parody and performance uh, using symbols that elicit, that provoke like shock, you know, totalitarianism, fascism, Nazism, Bolshevism, this kind of extremism, both on the left and the right. Um, So I think in that sense, it captured 
a politics of aesthetics or a politics of parody and postmodernist play of that period. I, I don't know. I, I never really ascribed too much like hard, you know, pragmatist politics in it. I didn't envision the national Bolsheviks being part of the creation of a, I don't know, whatever system in Russia. That's really interesting to hear. Um, I honestly, when I came of age, I think Limonov was no longer um, was no longer at the center stage of Russian political life. Uh, I remember in the interview, Fabrizio was talking how in the 90s, Limonov was a rock star. Everyone knew him and he was, yeah, he was this um, provocateur, uh, eccentric figure that everyone was fascinated with. Or, I mean, I, I bet people had various feelings about his uh about his party and his <laughs> ideas. But yeah, I, I, growing up, I didn't really hear much about him anymore. So yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that. I'm just trying to say that I don't know much about Limonov. <laughs> um, but it's true. It seems like he does capture the spirit of the 90s and um, I thought it was interesting that the party managed to capture this seemingly contradictory ideas and um, philosophical and maybe political platforms like nationalism and Bolshevism. But what is fascinating for me personally is that I see a lot of that in my field today. So say the people I work with, they both embrace the socialist past. I mean, not in any critical or, you know, philosophical or political way, but mostly based on their personal experiences. The fact that they had free medical care, free child care, um, I don't know, certain aspects of internationalism, like friendship of the peoples, um, not having to care about money, etc., etc. But at the same time, they subscribe to nationalist ideas, or maybe they uh, embrace their pagan heritage or orthodox uh, ideas. And so to me, it was always so strange that these two seemingly really different things can be combined in one person's worldview. Um, but talking about Limonov, I guess, like made me aware that it's not that, um, it's not that uncommon and that there have been historically other examples where these two have been brought together in, in, in one movement. And, and I do wonder if, if because of this, the fact that they seem to, the national Bolsheviks seem to capture a time, if Limonov, you know, he died a few years ago, if Limonov was alive today, how, I don't think it really, I think it's a, it's an aesthetic and a movement that doesn't seem to fit in the present time. Um, though I, we should be 
I mean, I should state that despite my view of it as this parody play performance, it did inspire <laughs> uh, people to commit violence, right? I remember reports of like national Bolsheviks, like breaking into whatever meetings and beating people up. There's hooliganism. The fact that some of these people were inspired to go fight in the Donbass in 2014, 2015. Um, so it did definitely like inspire people to action. Um, but, you know, in a lot of ways, it functions, um, which I think is what you're pointing to, it functions as a, the National Bolshevik is one of many types of, um, you know, communities or organizations or even scenes, right? It's a very punk rock element to all of this, um, to provide community and provide meaning to fill a void, you know, of, I don't know, ideological crisis, right? This is this to me, this is the 1990s writ large, right? There's no. Exactly. I've been thinking about it a lot during my field work, you know, trying to kind of disentangle this conundrum of like, why, why, <laughs> why these two things are combined together. And it does seem like, you know, People need inspiration. People need to believe in some in some kind of higher goal or purpose. And they know from, again, their personal experience that socialism didn't work. So that cannot be that bigger goal. Where do we turn then? Right? And that's, that's why, you know, paganism, orthodoxy, nationalism, all these other things ideologies are filling the void. Thank you very, very much for your thoughts, Rusana. Um, as you know, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova. You just heard her. And uh, this is the SRB podcast, and we're sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners just like you. So if you like this podcast, please help us out by spreading the word um, so we can get more some more attention. Uh, drop us a line to let us know what you think, what you don't like, what you think we should be doing better, um, which I'm surprised we haven't gotten that many of those, though we've gotten some. Um, and of course, you know, if you'd like to support us financially, uh, please consider becoming a patron. We'd always uh, we'd happily embrace your support. This is, after all, a nonprofit educational endeavor, and we want to keep it free from paid advertising as much as we can. So please uh, consider becoming a, a monthly patron by joining the uh, table of SRB table of ranks by going to patreon.com slash blog or to srbpodcast.org and consider throwing us a couple of bucks every month. So until next time, bye. <laughs>
Just 